Two of the top commentators in compliance get together. They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. In this episode, Christy and I pay tribute to the FCPA blog. We look at corruption in Ukraine, the imbroglio current of Elon Musk, workplace challenges regarding remote work and worker termination, and of course, have an appearance from Florida Man, all on this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. Guru's Talk Compliance Podcast with me, Christy Grant-Hart. I'm here with the one and only Tom Fox. This week, we're covering some very hot topics, including Brazil basically unprosecuting the car wash bribery fiasco, why firing employees is a compliance issue, Elon Musk's beef with Mark Cuban and the Delaware court, and finally, Florida man's heist of a three and a half foot Snoop Dogg bobblehead doll. And honestly, this week's topics are explosive. But before we get to that, uh, Tom, how has your week been? And what do you think is the most interesting development? Well, my week has been good. Uh, I would say the most interesting development is uh, one that's fairly bittersweet for, I believe, everyone in the compliance realm. And that is the FCPA blog has announced it's shuttering its uh, blogosphere doors. Mm-hmm. And Harry Casson, the editor... Uh, put that out on a blog post earlier this week. And so I really wanted to both of us, Christy, to give our thoughts on uh, what the FCPA blog um, has meant uh, to each of us and what it has meant more importantly, really for the entire compliance profession. Uh, the found uh, the FCPA blog was founded in 2007 by Dick Casson, really the godfather of uh, blogospheres or bloggers <laughs> in the uh, blogosphere world as the first uh, FCPA compliance blogger. And he wanted to create uh, basically a bulletin board for compliance. And by that, I meant anyone could pin up an article on the FCPA blog. And he posted sometimes six, seven articles a day. And they were relatively short, three to 400 words. And that was by design. Um, But it forced you as a blogger or writer to be very concise. And uh, it was literally everything you can imagine from the nuts and bolts of compliance to uh, behavioral psychology to FCPA enforcement actions and everything in between. Um, I'm never quite sure how he did it, but he broke almost every FCPA enforcement action story first. Um, obviously, had a direct hotline, uh, probably the bat bat line from the DOJ and or SEC, but he and then uh, his son, Harry, who took over as editor-in-chief, continued that tradition. They put out a great top 10 uh, every year and uh, top 10 of all time. They were were a great resource. They haven't shut down yet, but they will be, and they'll be shuttering so that we won't have access uh, to the site. <clears throat> so uh, for me, Christy, it was the first resource I came across when I started in compliance in 2007. Um, I later wrote 
for the FCPA blog when I started my professional consulting career and I went out on my own. And that was really, that was Dick Casson. He encouraged me to write. Uh, he accepted some of my blogs. Uh, I remember uh, after I had blogged uh, every day or full time for one year, uh, I emailed him and, you know, told him how proud I was of myself. And his response was, that's great, Tom. When is your book coming out? And uh, that was the kind of person he was. He just, he challenged you. He made you better. Uh, he informed. He cajoled. He was a great mentor, uh, obviously knowledgeable. He had been in the FCPA world, I think, since the late 80s as a compliance officer. So he knew what he was talking about. Uh, Harry took over and continued those traditions. Uh, and it's uh, you know 17-year run, I can certainly understand that uh, it may be time to just do some different things. So um, farewell to the FCPA blog. Uh, I won't say we hardly knew ye, but because we did know him and we knew Dick and we knew Harry. And uh, it was a, a great resource for me. And I think more importantly, a great resource for the greater compliance community, Christy. I agree with everything you said, Tom. I mean, when I started my consulting company in 2016, um, Richard Bistrong was nice enough to introduce me to Dick Casson, who invited me to write and be part of that community. Uh, I think it is a, a gigantic loss. Um, and I wonder, Tom, you know, in, in kind of thinking about the postmortem, um, is it the lack or the perceived lack of prosecutions, the lack of imposing of monitors, which is definitely a theme throughout our podcast that made companies less afraid of this? Um, is it just the compliance has, has moved on more or is it, you know, I'm ready to be done with this thing and I've been doing it 17 years. What, what is your take on this in terms of its meaning beyond the sad lack of the resource that we're not going to have anymore? Uh, I don't think it's a drop in enforcement because uh, Dick has maintained ever since I've known him uh, something along the lines of the following. I can't tell you there's less bribery and corruption, but I can tell you there's more compliance. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, companies have gotten the message that compliance is not there just to prevent you from finding yourself in an FCPA enforcement action. Uh, effective compliance equates to more efficient business processes, equates to greater profitability. And I don't think you can get funding. I don't think you can go public. I don't think you can get a bank loan. You may not be able to get an insurance policy if you're a multinational company and you don't have a compliance program. You certainly can't partner up or even be in somebody's supply chain. So uh, I think it may it really may be more that uh, Harry's just ready uh, ready to move on. He's been doing this since he was in college in 2010. Hmm. And uh, I think, you know, he just may be, may be ready for that. He's been doing it 14 years. So uh, a lot of years there. Uh, I really don't put much stock in uh, kind of where FCPA enforcement is because one thing the FCPA blog always covered was compliance. It didn't cover FCPA, exclusively FCPA. And they talked about export controls. They talked about sanctions. They talked about AML. They talked about ESG. They talked about sustainability. So it was pretty broad-based by the time, uh, certainly uh, uh, in the 2020s. All right. Well, what are, the first thing I'm going to say your is, reflections. It's, oh, you, heavens. Well, I mean, I think it was it was magnificent. And I, I it's uh, perhaps a bit ironic um, that the first story that I chose is, in fact, from the FCPA blog. 
from the couple of days before it went out, before we knew this. Um, and it's titled, Firing Employees the Right Way is Part of Compliance. So to your point, Tom, this was not a FCPA-related article, but my goodness, is it good. Uh, it's written by Dick Casson, and it is fiery and spot on. So it opens by referencing the viral video of HR reps from the company Cloudfare firing Brittany Keish from her remote sales job. Now, have you seen it, Tom? Did you watch it? I did not. You missed out, man. It's only about two minutes long. So I watched it. Uh, Kasson describes it as excruciating. Uh, and in it, the HR folks tell Peach that she's fired and she keeps asking why. And the HR people say that she's just not done very well. And she counters and says she's only had positive reviews. And at that point, the HR folks basically say several times they don't know why she's being fired specifically, but she is. So she asks where her manager is. Manager isn't on the call, isn't answering questions or providing any insights. And then at the end of it, Cloudfare uh, issues a seriously flawed tweet or what used to be called a tweet in response to the video saying how much they care about their employees, yada, yada, yada. Kasten then brings up other notable situations similar to this, like the other CEO that was firing 900 people on a group call on Zoom, telling them that they were, quote, parts of the unlucky group that is being laid off, unquote. Uh, Kasten then talks about the importance of both onboarding and offboarding appropriately. Um, he notes that people fired in inept ways do find their former colleagues and talk to them about this, uh, either individually or on sites like Glassdoor. And that corporate culture can deteriorate very quickly in places where managers, senior HR folks aren't involved in firing and don't give good reasons for when people leave. Uh, and that's a serious issue that needs to be taken seriously. So I love that Dick Casson is right about compliance and culture when it comes to hiring and firing. Um, how would you counsel compliance officers to talk to HR or executives about that firing and offboarding issue? So... One of the things I've tried to advocate over the years, Christy, is that anytime there is a touch point with an employee, it's an opportunity for compliance. It's an opportunity uh, to not so much counsel, but garner information. Mm -hmm. It has to be done with dignity. And obviously this was not done with dignity, but um, it gives you the compliance professional an opportunity to simply say something like, you know, is there anything you want to get off your chest? Any violations you've seen? Now, not to be a, a cynical lawyer, but, you know, you get somebody to sign that and three weeks later, the whistle blows and you say, well, I've got this piece of paper here where I ask you that question. And for some reason, you didn't have anything. Not that I would ever suggest that. But uh, that's one reason. But people in that situation can be willing to talk to you in a way they haven't before, particularly if they know they're not going to be around. So uh, it can also be a way to forestall some type of claim going forward. If they'll give you that information uh, then, uh, rather than being a whistleblower later, maybe you can deal with it. Um, treating people with dignity is never wrong, and it can go a long way towards any post-employment separation litigation. So uh, you can garner information. You can uh, hopefully build some goodwill. I recognize uh, you're in the energy industry. Uh, you either have been laid off or you're going to be. And so I work for myself now. I'm not going to be in the latter, but I've certainly been in the former. And we've all gone through that. And so um, we're taught that 
what ha- what you did to someone today may happen to you tomorrow. So you have to really uh, have dignity about it. And the person you lay off today may be your boss down the road. So uh, in energy, we try to be a little more sensitive about that. But it's a great opportunity to garner information in a in a setting that you might not get otherwise. So uh, having compliance have that discussion and just um, the part you talked about was obviously the uh, publicity disaster oh. and the HR disaster. And how would you ever, how would that company ever hire again? So um, that's the whole reputational thing that we touch on from time to time, uh, but uh, can, at the end of the day can cost you more. All right. I, I just can't even believe this next one, Tom. Please, please go ahead. So um, th- some machinations I don't quite understand. Uh, the current Brazilian Supreme Court has basically disavowed Lava Jato, car wash. And they, uh, Odebrecht, for instance, got uh, basically uh, t- uh, time served, but money's paid in their fine and penalty and everything was wiped clean. I still don't understand that, but uh, hopefully someone from Brazil can explain it to me one day. But TI, Transparency International, obviously noticed these developments over the past year, and Brazil went down the scale on the TI, CPI, or Transparency International Corruption Perception Index, which came out, I believe, last week. Well, now the Brazilian Supreme Court is going to uh, start investigating uh, Transparency International, and that's just uh using the courts for a very nefarious manner. Now TI is a German company, so they can't probably get jurisdiction over TI. Um TI typically has uh a national branch. So they may have a branch in Brazil of Transparency International. But your your talking point, I have to read it. Holy freaking heck, Tom. This article is insane. And you're spot on. <laughs> this is insane. Um, and no country wants to go down. And, you know, what's T.I. going to say about him next year? Oh, you guys sued us. We're going to say you go up the scale. Yeah. Uh, it Honestly, the, the breadth of the car was invest- investigation, it was so... Honestly, at the time, it was exciting, right? It was so international. It was heralded for how much the world's regulators worked together to come to this outcome, supporting the rule of law. There was so much written in the FCPA blog and other places about how Brazil had turned a corner in the Clean Companies Act, and this is a totally new environment, and they are torpedoing all of that. I just, it's baffling to me. I know that there's a lot of politics around it, and the fact they're suing TI or whatever they're doing is just absolutely baffling to me. I mean, what is, what are they thinking? I don't understand. Yeah. Uh, but talking about don't understanding, uh, <laughs> someone I rarely understand is Mark Cuban. But in this uh, article that you put forward, uh, I thought uh, I did understand him and I applaud what he's doing. So if you applaud what Mark Cuban's doing. Tell us what it was and why you are so interested in it. All right. So this is our first of two uh, articles highlighting Elon Musk. Uh, and this one is titled, Mark Cuban doubles down on support for DEI after trading barbs with anti-diversity crusader. That's quite a word. Elon Musk. 
So the former billionaires are trade, or I'm sorry, the billionaires are trading fiery barbs that have engulfed both sides of the DEI issue on X, which is, of course, formerly known as Twitter. It's much easier to say Twitter and tweet, isn't it? But anyway, on X, um, the article comes from Inc.com and it notes the escalation over the weekend when Musk called Cuban a racist for championing diversity initiatives. Musk is not a fan of DEI. He has called the practice of corporate disclosure laws regar uh, regarding DEI practices, quote, propaganda, unquote, and is so unhappy about it, he recently posted DEI must die. So uh, Mark Cuban feels a bit differently about this. Um, according to his statements to the Wall Street Journal, he said, I keep waiting for someone else to take the DEI side, and no one did. So he did. Cuban, for his part, explained that broadly recruiting means companies have a broader mix of talent, which has proven in numerous studies to result in better financial outcomes, which is the D for diversity. And in explaining equity, he said he's in favor of making sure everyone who is hired is in the best position to succeed, so they're equally going to succeed, and that when it comes to inclusion, he wants everyone to feel confident in their coworkers and their place, which is a, such a crazy idea, Tom. Who, who wants to have everyone feel included at work? It's madness. Uh, the ex-fans of Musk responded badly to all of this uh, with anti-Semitic rhetoric that has gone into ugly vitriol. Uh, and Mr. Cuban said he was very surprised to see that. He said, Musk can call me a racist and a chicken and a moron, but this is going in a very ugly direction. So I find it interesting watching this argument play out in real time with two gigantic business celebrities. Do you think that this kind of thing affects anyone's impression of the value of DEI in the corporate world? Or is the X fight of no interest to the businesses? Uh, I think it is important to have such a high profile advocate and that whatever Art Cuban is, I don't think you can say he's a flaming liberal. He uh, successfully fought the SEC on an insider trading case. He is a billionaire many times over. In fact, he sold two businesses for over a billion. He's been the owner of the Dallas Mavericks. He recently sold it, but he owned it for over 20 years. And I think his business cred is there. And when he says that diversity brings a better workforce and a better workplace, I think that carries weight. So uh, I don't think this is an inside baseball fight. I think this is a fight between um, two very rich people who could spend however much money they want to get their point across. And having Mark Cuban articulate this, I think, is positive for both DEI and business. Shout out to Mark Cuban. There we go. There we go. So uh, next up, uh, Christy, I've got an article about a um, massive fraud that was or corruption scandal that was uh, uncovered by UK Ukraine in their uh, weapons um, logistics and support, uh, where they ordered $40 million of a certain type of ammunition and magically it never appeared. So, um, they basically got taken and, uh, the country is obviously in need of ammunition and the fear I have in it, even beyond not getting the ammunition, Christy, is this plays directly into the critics of aid, uh, for Ukraine's hands because Ukraine had a uh, fairly risky reputation prior to uh, the Russian invasion. And if they can't clean up their corruption, they may not be able to get into the EU. And I think it could negatively impact aid. 
I mean, the way that it read, it was people on the inside who were doing this that work at the Defense Department. I mean, it's just incredibly sad that they're putting their people, their soldiers, their ability to win against the Russian aggression at risk. Um, it, it really does reflect very, very badly on them. Um, there's statements in the article about President Zelensky really trying to root this out and trying to essentially take out parts of the government and replace them to, to fix this problem. But it's really going to be damaging in trying to join the EU. And it's, it's part of the requirements to do so. So very sad to see this and hoping that they can turn it around at some point sooner than later. And I forgot to say, uh, Christy, that story came to us from CNN. Um, what do you have for us, Christy? Well, we're going to switch a little bit and talk about remote workforces and their challenges for compliance officers. So what I'm citing to is a Navex uh, part of their top 10 trends and predictions for 2024 ebook. Uh, this was excerpted this week for the Navex blog, and it's written by Scott Moritz, who is a certified fraud specialist. So he talked about several risks about remote work, which we're aware of, right, including network security and amplified opportunities for misconduct, the challenges with investigations. But he discussed a couple of risks that I hadn't considered before. So the two that I wanted to focus a minute on are training and professional certification fraud and what he calls lack of line of sight. So line of sight refers to the natural day-to-day -day interactions of managers with the people who work for them. So it's you know noticing their productivity and in their engagement, how they talk to others. Are they emotionally involved in their work? Are they pouting all day long? Do they hate it? Um, and when it comes to professional certification and fraud, uh, the author notes that many certifications require a certain number of hours or for people to pass tests. So it's easier to lie about the number of hours completed when workers are remote and heck, they could get someone else to test, do the tests on their system. We've seen that in some of the audit scandals recently. Um, so the author extols compliance officers to be aware of these systemic risks and to mitigate them as much as possible. And that, that line of sight thing was really interesting to me, Tom, because it does speak to the challenges of not really just seeing someone and being in their energy. Uh, when you think about remote workers, Tom, what do you think is the biggest risk in a remote or hybrid environment? So I, I found that that part about certification fraud incredibly interesting, Christy, because, um, I mean, you and I are just incessant learners. <laughs> yeah, we speak. Yeah, we write. But guess what? We also attend webinars and we sit in to listen to our colleagues and friends. Um, they may say one thing we hadn't thought of, and that makes it worth it for us. And so we're continually learning. Uh, and most compliance professionals I know are continually learning. And one of the great things that came out of the pandemic was the plethora of webinars and other online training that you could get at little so to many times no cost. So uh, I guess that surprised me a little bit. Uh, the risk I would suggest is yet a different one because this happened to my wife. Uh, she gets, uh, this was early on in the pandemic when she was working from home and she gets an email from uh, a very big vendor for her department I said, Hey, can we get your home address? I'm like, I don't know they want your home address. And they, uh, it was fairly not nefarious. It was a gift card for DoorDash. Mm -hmm. And, um, but it was $75. Now I used to work for this company. I knew what the gift card limit, I knew what the gift limit from vendors was. And it was below that. I said, oh, this is not good. Of course, the joke was, 
$75 for DoorDash would pay for about half of your burger. Right. right. <laughs> because but it's so expensive. All the fees. We couldn't and- even eat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so it made me think about, uh, so if she had been in the office and the vendor had come in and given it to her or, you know, communicated that to her in some way, there would have been an email, uh, there would have been a login, there would have been something that could have been tracked. But because he mailed it to us at home, it couldn't be tracked. So it made me wonder, no one had, you know, thought about home addresses for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. But during the pandemic, we were thinking about that. So that that was a risk that I really fully hadn't appreciated. But the one that, um, I mean, I hate to use Spark Consulting, but you guys have been remote forever. Always. And you have <laughs> and you have some pretty highly motivated people that are working for you and have worked with you for a long, long time. And you and her husband are very motivated people. And maybe that's just it. They're just motivated people. But um um I don't really know about that direct line of sight from a supervisor. I was always motivated. I just, you know, put my head down and motored when I had to go into the office and I always had plenty of work. So that wasn't a problem, but uh, I mean, maybe there, you know, and that goes to the whole, well, we have to be together to collaborate and have ideas and all that discussion. Uh, I've worked remotely since 2010. So I don't really feel that way, but maybe some others do. And maybe your experience has been different. Maybe we're just uh, very dedicated people and we've got great sparkies (laughs) as well, but um (laughs) Maybe if you work at the, the first companies we were talking about, you're not so motivated to do the work that they're that they're looking at. So, all right, why don't we move to? Uh, interestingly, Tom, you and I both picked an Elon Musk story. Let's let's hear the second one. Well, he is the gift that keeps on giving, and this one is just perfect. Elon Musk. It started out where the Delaware Court of Chancery voided his fifty-five billion dollar pay package. Um. And I'm going to go into that in a little bit. And But it was followed, of course, by him saying, well, if Delaware's going to spank me, I'm going to leave Delaware and reincorporate in Texas. Well, even the great state of Texas has corporate laws. Sorry, Elon. Um, so talk about taking, I'm going to take my ball home <laughs> because you hurt my feelings and you hurt my pocketbook. But the decision itself, Christy, was interesting because the court did not say $55 billion was too much or unseemly. What they said was that, um, and the shareholder suit claimed that the board hadn't negotiated in good faith against Musk. Well, what the court said was the shareholders voted on the pay package, but they did not uh, get enough information on the process. And so that's where the court found fault was the process by which the shareholders uh, were not communicated with about what went into the $55 billion pay package. So uh, it was really a process argument, and I'm a process guy, so I really appreciated that. Uh, Number two, how do you claw this back? What's the remedy here? Uh, you know, does someone show up at, uh, one of your sparkies show up and say, sorry, Christy, you know, that 55 billion you got, we're going to need that back. Um, so I don't know how you enforce this, uh, going forward, but, uh, I thought it was important because the court 
once again, did not say $55 billion is wrong, but they said the process by which it was obtained was wrong. And we can all draw lessons around good corporate governance from that. And of course, I love the fact he said, I'm leaving Delaware because you were mean to me. You made I- me follow the law. Yeah, well, you know, going going to Texas is your best bet for not having to do that. So good <laughs> for him. Um, I don't know. Did it? Did it? It kind of bugged me though, Tom. I I really feel like there is a sense of there's there are things around business judgment rule. There are things about this was public and the shareholders did approve it. Um, I mean, the court really took umbrage with how much of a connection that Musk had with his board members. And it almost read like it was a conflict of interest issue. Um, right. Do you think that over really looking at it, that it, it is there lessons, are there lessons for boards and other officers? And are you concerned that this is overreach at all? I'm not concerned it's overreach. Uh, it's the trade-off for having a public company where people invest and get shares of stock in your company, that you have to follow certain uh, certain rules and disclosures about what the, the board is doing. And if it was X or Twitter, his private company, no question he could do what he wanted. Uh, he set, I would say, nearly impossible metrics. Uh, he basically had to hit, I think, 10 billion to, uh, tranches of 10 billion to start getting paid. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was like 500 tr- billion, if he hit it, that's why he got the 10%. So uh, he hit these incredible tranches or incredible uh, metrics. Um, But if you're going to have a public corporation, you've got to follow some corporate governance rules and you can't run it like it's your personal fiefdom, like he can X. Fair enough. And and famously runs everything like a personal fiefdom. So there we are. All right. Um, So enough about Elon. Uh, Shall we talk about privacy? Everyone's favorite. Um, (laughs) I know. My next article, it comes from Covington, the law firm of Covington, and it is a roundup of two new U.S. state privacy laws. So those states are New Hampshire and New Jersey with the new laws. Um, They're going to be joining the club of about 14 states with comprehensive data privacy legislation. So I won't go into the finer points of either of these laws, but I did want to highlight what I found most interesting about them. Uh, so both laws define sensitive data in very European style terms, which I think is completely interesting because it is showing the coalescence essentially of some of these laws and some of these expectations in a way that we hadn't seen previously. Because typically um, before all these comprehensive laws, when we looked at data breach in America, it almost always related to financial data or your social security number, or your driver's license. But the New Hampshire and New Jersey laws require consent, right, very GDPR, to collect uh, data relating to things like racial and ethnic origin, religious belief, and sex life. Um, Both laws also include information pertaining to immigration status or citizenship is sensitive data that needs consent as well to be collected. And uh, it was also interesting to me that in New Jersey, the law includes financial information in its definition of sensitive data. So that kind of coalition of both of those original ideas. And the article notes that only California Consumer Privacy Act or the CCPA includes financial data in its definition of that type of sensitive personal data. So look, Tom, two more states joining the patchwork of comprehensive data privacy regulation. I Definitely think that others are coming along shortly. Uh, not a controversial position, but do you agree? Uh, Christy, once again, points to the need for uh, federal legislation in this 
uh, although I have zero hope that we'll get anything out of this Congress, uh, we could well have a patchwork of 50 different regulations. And rightly so, if it's all passed by the state. I didn't find anything in these laws that I thought was particularly offensive uh, or uh, overreaching. So, um, as you said, two more states joining the patchwork of comprehensive privacy uh, legislation. And it's just that it's a patchwork. And um, I know you and I both have uh, data privacy compliance officer friends that uh, will pull out what little hair they have left uh, <laughs> because now there's two more states. But uh, until we get some federal legislation here, uh, GDPR is going to be the standard. California right behind that. Meet those standards. You're probably going to be okay. Absolutely. Did you know Texas has a comprehensive law? I was going to make a Texas joke, and I found out that Texas does, in fact, have a comprehensive privacy law. Who knew? I, I had to look that up once, so I know that to be true. <laughs> true. All right, let's move from Texas to Ecuador. What do we think? So, Ecuador. Uh, first of all, uh, this article comes to us from Bloomberg. Uh, Patricia Hurtado is the lead reporter on this, and she is a, a great uh, white-collar criminal reporter for Bloomberg. But I have to shout out to my good friend, Sam Rubenfeld, who used to be with the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. Um who's also reporting on this trial. I get a little email summary, but I don't subscribe to MLaw Review, so I couldn't cite to him. But shout out to Sam, because he's reporting uh, on this case too. This is the VTOL uh, trader or VTOL group uh, trial where one of their former traders, uh, the one who's alleged to have paid the bribes, uh, pled not guilty to FCPA violations. And so he's in trial in uh, Brooklyn, I believe. And this is just the article we cited to talked about bags of cash and my favorite, a $70,000 watch that was given as a bribe. But literally every day, Christy, there's a new report of additional bribes or other bribes. Yesterday, it was a, a Pemex, uh, a former Pemex official who said he was paid $300,000 in what he characterized as candy. Oh. Uh, yeah. For, uh, and what uh, VTOL group was getting inside, this was inside information uh, so they could get trading contracts with energy companies uh, in Latin America and Mexico. I don't know if, if Spark or you guys have ever uh, counseled uh, trading companies, but, Ten years ago, traders never thought the FCPA applied to them. And uh, I tried to tell chief compliance officers, look, when you do business with PMAX, that is by definition uh, a state-owned enterprise. When you do with Petrobras, you name the South American energy company or any energy company outside the United States, um, that's by definition covered by the FCPA. And if you have traders doing the trader thing, uh, you could have an FCPA problem. And uh, with this VTOL group, uh, the VTOL paid their FCPA fine around bribes paid to Petro Ecuador in Ecuador. But the testimony is literally the length and breadth of Latin America up to now Mexico. So uh, it is just worse and worse by the day. But you got to love it, Christy. If you're getting $70,000 watches, no, it's got, one thing to get a 
Rolex, but no, we're talking a different level. Uh, actually, I, I think I, I will disagree with you, Tom. The best one so far is the hundred and twenty thousand dollar euro or thousand euro bathroom upgrade in Portugal. That is there you go far and away the best one of these. Um, so no question. I'd look all of our. It's depressing today in our in our FCPA world that Ukraine and Brazil and Ecuador and. I don't know. I, uh, hopefully Ecuador doesn't go the way of Brazil um, in any of this stuff. And we'll actually do some cleaning up. But we shall see. Well, has Florida man made an appearance? Yes. And by the way, looking up all the Florida man stories, you see some really disturbing things just for the record. So I do this for, with love for you and our audience. Um, all right. So we're wrapping up with Florida man, of course. Now, Tom, how familiar are you with Snoop Dogg and Snoop Dogg's music? Well, I know there's a Snoop Dogg, but more importantly, I know he's one of the hosts of the 2024 Paris Olympics on NBC. Okay. So, well, if you're not as familiar, some of the strange things that I say may not resonate if you're not familiar with any of the lyrics, but stick with me because the story will make sense regardless of my Snoop Dogg references. All right. So our Florida man, Rocco Benedito, he went out with friends to his local Mexican restaurant. And while he was there, he noticed a three and a half foot tall bobblehead doll of the famous rapper Snoop Dogg, kind of a statue. Uh, video footage shows that he was seated with friends relaxing. He was laid back, presumably sipping on gin and juice. And perhaps Mr. Benedetto had his mind on his money and his money on his mind, because as he was leaving the restaurant, he picked up the doll and brazenly walked out of the restaurant. Now, the doll is worth over $12,000, so that does make sense. However, he must have felt guilty about taking the D-O-double-G-U-C because he called deputies to confess the crime. The police told him to take the bobblehead back to the police station, but instead he tried to sneak it back into the restaurant so he could claim it hadn't been stolen. Remember, this is after he has already confessed. Sadly, it didn't work. He tried to drop it like it's hot, but sadly was arrested. And weirdly, Tom, this isn't the first story of a Snoop Dogg snatcher. A similar figure of Snoop was stolen two years ago from a Circle K in nearby Cape Coral. So perhaps it wasn't Benedito's first time, which makes sense since he wouldn't have been an old dog trying to learn new tricks. Well, <laughs> okay. A new low with Florida man. <laughs> trying to steal the Snoop. Not going to work. Anyway, thank you for joining us this week on Two Gurus Talk Compliance. I'm Christy Grandhart. And I'm your co-host, Tom Fox. Till next time. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to the award-winning Two Gurus Talk Compliance. This was our first episode of 2024, and I hope you will join us throughout the year. Christy and I get together every other week and post typically on a Friday, although we're a day late on this one due to some technical issues. I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.